say, look, there's no formula. There is no direct path. I have not followed a direct or clear path. And frankly, nobody that I really know has. Everybody has to pivot at times in their life. But what I do know is that you will be doing exactly what you were meant to be doing at that point in time when you do it. So just breathe it in and don't always be looking and looking for the next thing because you're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to be happy at that very moment. So you have to balance it all. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. I'm Raman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Ida Abdelkani, a chief catalyzer. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, Anna Momkovis, CMO at Front Burner Brands. It was a great conversation about life's influences and inflection points that change one's past finding balance, and maintaining curiosity. Here's a quick bio. Anna has a love for translating marketing to the consumer, in large part due to her language skills developed as a child and learning the art of speaking others' languages. Her love for beauty products took her to L'Oreal right out of business school, where she advanced throughout various roles before an inflection point and deciding to move to P&G Beauty Care as an experienced hire. She reached another inflection point in her life while pregnant with her second daughter and decided to leave P&G to move closer to family. This led to her entry into hospitality, where she continued to deliver unforgettable experiences via marketing as the VP of Product Marketing at Bloomin' Brands. Now she serves as a CMO of Front Burner Brands, which owns Melting Pot, the world's premier fondue restaurant. She continues to use her language skills to bring together multifunctional groups that she works with and in her mentoring of others. What I love about our conversation is Anna's realism that we can't have it all at the same time and that hard work and prioritization create balance. It provides a refreshing point of view versus the at-all-cost mentality we often see in the workplace. I think many of us can relate to facing a fork in the road and making a decision that will change our trajectory and the importance of staying curious and looking up and out of our phones. So let's dive in. We hope you will enjoy our conversation with Anna Momkovis. Today we're talking to Anna Momkovis, CMO of Front Burner Brands. Anna, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Ida. Thanks so much. Well, many already know your professional story, but I want to start off with a story about you from before you began your career journey. Sure. Well, I think one, it's actually a very early story from my childhood, and it was about when I was four or five years old, and it was kind of like an awakening for me um, at such a young age. So I'm a child of immigrants. My family immigrated from Cuba in 1960. My mother was about 13 years old at the time. I was born in Miami, and I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. My first language was Spanish, and I actually spoke no English whatsoever when I went to school. So I showed up for my first day of kindergarten. I was actually about four years old, 
And my Spanish-speaking grandmother dropped me off, and she spoke to my Spanish-speaking teacher, who was also Cuban. Her name was Mrs. Robinson. And I thought I was all set. Everything was going to be fine. My grandmother left, and I was there with Mrs. Robinson, and we were just, you know, doing whatever games as kids were assembling, and I realized that I had to go to the bathroom. So I go to Mrs. Robinson, and I say to her in Spanish, could I please go to the bathroom? And she looked at me, and she says, you have to say it in English before I'll let you go. And it was a moment that I would actually liken to watching the Thriller video by Michael Jackson when he's with the girlfriend and the girlfriend looks at him and all of a sudden he's a zombie too. I thought Mrs. Robinson was a zombie. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? What's happening to me? And all of a sudden I felt like I was in another planet. And so I said, I don't know how to say that. And she taught me and I repeated back. And as far as I know, I just started speaking English from that moment forward. And why I say that was an awakening for me is that I realized that I was now slightly different from everybody. Not only was I different in that I spoke Spanish and I re- I didn't realize it at the time. And then all of a sudden I started speaking English. And uh, a couple of years later, we moved from Miami to North Florida and nobody spoke Spanish. When kids realized that I... I did speak another language. They first thought it was strange, but then they thought it was kind of interesting. Like, can you count to a hundred in Spanish? And I said, yes, you can't. <laughs> From that moment forward, yeah. I just I just realized that that was a gift and an interesting talent that I had that others really didn't have um, at a time when, you know, it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, something that, that was recognized as such. My parents actually coming from Cuba had to hide that as best as they could in order to acclimate to this new culture. But in, for me, it was slightly different. And like I said, it, I, I realized it was a it was an advantage for me very early on. I love that it became a superpower and not something that held you back for some reason. Right. Not at all. You know, because it just gave me a pretty much a head start in everything. And I realized that I could, you know, communicate differently with, with more people um, than the average kid. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's interesting because I also, you know, as an immigrant grew up with a second language and I felt like I had to assimilate. Mm-hmm. So for for me, at least in my experience, I didn't speak Farsi at all growing up. I understood it. I was actually fluent um, because my parents spoke it at home, but I was not interested in speaking, you know, because I wanted to to blend in. I wanted to be American and and speak English all the time. And it wasn't until I went to college and met other Iranian Americans where I felt like, oh, okay, it's okay to to have both of these identities. And then I started speaking. So kudos to you for for being able to recognize that at such a young age. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely um, been something that got me interested in um, in other languages. You know, so beyond Spanish, I you know, when you go to school, you have the choice of which language do you want to take? You know, you could take Latin, Spanish, or French. And I was like, why would I take Spanish? I already, I already know it enough. Right. So then right. I, and then I started learning French. So it just kind of was a, a springboard for other, other languages for me. And I love that you uh, can be dangerous in Greek and Swedish. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I actually lived in, in Greece for a while before going to business school. And so I was, Im- I was immersed in the culture. I was actually teaching English 
to Greek kids that were looking to come to the States for college. So I was very immersed in the language. And then Swedish is, my husband's actually Swedish, which is where my last name comes from and um, my unpronounceable last name. So my husband's <laughs> Swedish and, and we've grown, uh, we have three daughters. And so the girls have grown up speaking you know, Swedish and Spanish and English. So, so yes, I do know enough Swedish to be dangerous. <laughs> I love that. Well, when you think back to your childhood and before you started your career, was there a moment where you knew that you wanted to pursue business or marketing? Did you ever think you would be doing what you're doing now? No, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I actually had probably had no idea what that was. I, I grew up in a family of doctors. So both my grandfathers were doctors, both my grandmothers worked with my grandfathers and, and basically were their office managers. And then my father was in the medical profession. And then actually my mother um, and my stepfather are both doctors. And, you know, you think about that. My mother, actually, I come from a, a line of incredibly strong women. And so, like I said, my both my grandmothers basically managed my grandfather's um, medical you know, business was, is truly what it was, their medical practice. My great aunt, so my grandmother's sister, she was a lawyer in Cuba, which was very rare. And then my mother, you know, talk about multitasking. My mother got married, was in medical school, and had me while she was in medical school. And was wow. she was one of two women in her medical school class, which again is unheard of. So I grew up and, you know, very much surrounded by medicine. And I don't know if the expectation from my family was for me to go into medicine, but one thing I was absolutely sure of is that I would never go into medicine. It was just, I saw too much. I heard too much. I saw the sacrifices made. You know, my parents were actually obstetricians and gynecologists at a time when, you know, they they did all their own deliveries. They covered, so if somebody called at three o'clock in the morning, in labor, they had to go. And if they had patients going into labor at the same time, they couldn't leave me alone. So guess who else got thrown in the car and taken to the hospital, you know, to uh, sleep in the doctor's lounge while while somebody was delivering a baby. So I just, I grew up with too much of that. So I absolutely knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So going into marketing and business was not something I grew up or dreamed about, but I realized again very early on that I was very, very interested in connecting with people. And maybe it was because of the languages that I spoke, but I realized that I had interesting ways of of getting interesting insights out of people or into people or just having different perspectives um, into people. And I think that part of marketing was very appealing to me. I love that. Yeah, that's part of it for me too, why I got into marketing, right? It was the idea of trying to understand people, trying to be able to figure out how to communicate with them. And I think a lot of that actually comes from the dual identity that I had growing up. Do you think that affected you at all when you think about marketing and wanting to understand different walks of life? Oh, absolutely. I think what I realized from the different languages is like, it it helps you think potentially a little bit more conceptually because you mm-hmm. do see things from other people's perspectives. And when I think about marketing and, and you and you are channeling and you are the voice of the consumer and the guest, you are able to to translate that, so to speak. So that's to the consumer and to the guest. But even within a corporate organization, what I've realized is that every function uh, in, a, in a big multifunctional company or even a small multifunctional company, every function speaks its own language. And when I figured that out and I realized that 
as a marketer, I have to really understand and speak all of their languages. So I have to speak a certain way to finance and I have to speak a certain way to supply chain and I have to speak a certain way to legal, for example, that, you know, when I'm able to, to really realize and, and, and speak their language to be able to collaborate and make sure that, you know, everybody is working towards the same objective and has the best outcome possible. I think that that's really, really helped me. Well, to that end, Anna, is there a time where you encountered something in one of your career moments where you weren't able to bring everybody together or you were not able to translate things in a way that got everybody working towards the same vision? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure that there's many examples of that. I think you try to have the same objective. You try to have look at the same outcome. But sometimes, you know, sometimes I think at P&G, right? P&G had such robust processes. You know, my, the nemesis of my experience <laughs> at P&G, I think, has to be the simple process. Oh, yeah. yeah right? <laughs> and so, but I came to appreciate it because it's not just about checking the boxes, but it's just a very robust process to to make sure that you've thought of everything. And so I think thinking back at P&G, we were launching a cosmetics product on Max Factor. And Max Factor is a global brand, but it meant different things in Asia versus Europe versus the U.S. And in the U.S., it was actually a very small brand at the time. And our sister brand was, you know, CoverGirl, which is a huge brand and, and, and still is to this day. And I think one of the challenges was for me when you're going through the process and finally launching a product that was launching globally, but working specifically with, with the U.S., the budget wasn't going to be sufficient, you know, especially when you had to be the little sister to Big Cover Girl. And when you think about competitively what was going on with a company like L'Oreal, which I worked with, you know, I used to work at. So when I was there at Max Factor and realizing what I was up against and realizing my competitors, actually my sister brand and my former brand, and, you know, fighting really hard to try to get, you know, sufficient funding, sufficient support, marketing support for this type of launch for a smaller brand. I think that's when, you know, the reality set in. It's like, hey, we get it, Anna, but it's just not going to work out. We cannot justify the type of spend that you feel is required for Max Factor to break through when you're, when you are dealing with these kind of bigger brands. So I think that was definitely, and then, you know, and then what happened, you know, unfortunately we never even launched because we couldn't justify, you know, going through all this, you know, as you go through the simple process, you really couldn't justify going all the way through when you knew that marketing spend wasn't, wasn't going to take you where, where you needed to be to fulfill your goals. Yeah, that reminds me of um, a time I had to write. I can't remember what it was called. I mean, it was essentially a postmortem, but we had a word for it when you had to go back and look at why a project wouldn't work out, why it wouldn't, you know, meet the simple process. Mm -hmm. And that's a very humbling experience <laughs> when you have to do that at P&G, you know, and really go through why there were factors that didn't lead to success, but also a great learning experience, right? Absolutely. To do that postmortem and look back and, and say, okay, here are some of the challenges and maybe, and maybe some things out of your control, but then use that as the learning, right? Moving forward. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that your story made me think about is forks in the road. I think we all have inflection points in our life and most certainly in our careers where a decision will really set us on one path 
versus the other. And as you reflect back on your own career, did you ever face a fork in the road like that where it set you down one path? I did. And actually, I would actually say that there was two very important forks in the road for me from a career standpoint and also from a personal standpoint. Um, The first one was I was at L'Oreal. It was my first job out of business school. And that was my big step into marketing. And L'Oreal for me was my dream job. I wanted to go into the beauty industry. L'Oreal was, you know, the premier global beauty company. It owned all the brands that you know from, you know, prestige brands like Lancome, mass brands like L'Oreal. I mean, people there lived and breathed and knew beauty. And I was so excited to go work there. And as a result, you know, I started as an assistant marketing manager, the equivalent of an ABM. And after about a year and a half, I was already a marketing manager. And my next step would have been marketing director. And I had to take a hard look at at myself and my career and what I was wanting to do. And I, in my heart, didn't think that the equivalent of a marketing director at L'Oreal was would be the same as a marketing director at a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever or a Johnson & Johnson, like these huge companies that are known for marketing. So although I could have, you know, risen and kept on rising very high within that company, I just didn't think that that was the right thing for me in my career. So I basically took a step back and that's how I went to Procter & Gamble. I didn't go to Procter & Gamble out of college or out of business school. I came in as an experienced hire. And P&G being a promote from within company, I was already a marketing manager or I guess the equivalent of a brand manager. But I went to P&G and started over as an assistant brand manager. I was just going to say that it's extremely difficult to come from the outside. It is. Like you said, it's fr- it's promote from within. So yeah, wow. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. So I, yeah, so I came in as an experienced hire. The one thing about that is that I was able to better dictate what brand I would go on. So I came in as an experienced hire into beauty. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, hey, welcome to Cincinnati and we're going to put you on whatever brand <laughs> we want. You know, I was right. able to go right into beauty. So I was able to continue um, in an industry that I was passionate about. But yes, I had to take that step back as an ABM and then work my way, have, you know, the the different assignments within ABM, design, delivery, and then, you know, was promoted to brand manager. Um, so that was my first inflection point. You're really taking that conscious, making that conscious decision to really take a step back in order to go forward, right? And so that was a big one. And then the second inflection point for me was when I left PNG. I was very happy with PNG. I I lived in uh, Baltimore, and our first daughter was born in Baltimore, and I was brand manager for Global Design Max Factor. And like I said, I really loved what I was doing. I loved what I was learning. I loved, you know, that I was global design. So, you know, my international passion was part of the role as well as beauty and cosmetics. I love the people I worked with, not just my immediate team, but I've never met people more responsible, more accountable, smart as I have at p I mean, to the point that I almost had like imposter syndrome being there when I first started because <laughs> I thought everybody was just, just so amazing. And uh, like I said, I didn't want to leave, but I was then pregnant with my second daughter. 
Um, my husband and I were basically by ourselves in Baltimore with no family nearby. We already had the one daughter who was in preschool or daycare at the time. And so you would get those calls like, hey, she has a fever or hey, she got sick. You got to come pick her up. And we're both working professionals. So who can drop everything at that particular moment and go pick her up and then go home? And and then in addition to already having a baby, in addition to being pregnant with our second, I had a death in the family here in Florida that basically meant my one set of my grandparents who were already in their 90s were going to be completely alone. And so I had to make that decision to move. Like we just had to move for family reasons and be closer to family and, and move to Florida. And so that was very hard. You know, so basically I, I was on maternity leave uh, when I left P&G and the hope was, and we tried very hard to see what I could do from Florida with P&G, but that was going to require so much travel and it wasn't going to be the best role, you know, in terms of what I would be interested in that we just had to make the decision to ultimately separate, which was difficult. But, you know, that did propel me into other areas that I probably would have never imagined, which is hospitality, um, which is where I am now and where I've been now for about over 10 years, almost 13 years. Yeah, that's such a big switch. And especially with your love for beauty care, Mm -hmm. right? You mentioned that L'Oreal was your dream job, you know, being able to work in the beauty industry and then able to have that continuity as you went to P&G. So that's quite a switch, right? In terms of industries to go into hospitality. What enticed you to go into that industry? Well, what I realized is that there was a very unique common thread that I could tie it all together. And that is that when you were in beauty, the main shopper, the main user was the woman, the female consumer. Of course, there's beauty products for men, of course, right? But the the products that I was working on specifically were beauty products, you know, for women. And so I had a very strong sense of that female consumer had done so much research, had been in so many focus groups, done so many tests that I was very in tune with that female consumer and that mindset. And when you think about hospitality and when you think about restaurants, the main decision maker for going out to eat and certainly the main veto vote when that idea is shut down is the woman. It's the wife. It's the mother. You know, it's if it's a group of girlfriends, obviously everybody has a vote. So I was able to to channel those insights now into this female decision maker for a dining out experience. And so that has served me very well, has always helped me throughout my career. And again, made it really interesting when you when you were able to think about it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. I I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that thread as readily, but I love how how you've been able to bring it together. Was there ever a moment, Anna, when you took your foot off the gas pedal? Because you mentioned, right, being at P&G, like you already had one daughter, you had uh, another one on the way, you have three daughters. So you're not only a CMO, you're also a mom. And, you know, I just, I wonder, you know, having such a successful career, was there ever a time that you had to just take your foot off the gas a little bit? I did, um, of course, right? Because of those three kids. I mean, I remember when I was at, at when I was at P and G, and I was an ABM, and the gosh, I don't know what her title would have actually been, but she was basically the senior most marketer over both CoverGirl and Max Factor at the time, and she was telling the story of a couple that worked at 
Procter & Gamble, and they were both general managers. I don't know for what brands or, or what segment in Cincinnati, but she mentioned that they were both at the same level, but that the woman general manager of that couple was the stronger, better leader because she, not only does she get to that level, but she also had three kids along the way. And that blew me away. I'm like, wow, they're at the same level. So she got there at the same time, but had three kids while she was at it. That's really, really impressive. So yeah, you know, having kids definitely makes you take your foot off the gas for a period of time. But I I also kind of go back to recognizing what my mother did, for instance, right? She was in in medical school, one of two women in her medical school class, pregnant with me, right? Who gets pregnant in medical school these days? You just, it's just unheard of. But, you know, for her, I mean, she, and she had me at 24. So when you think of the sacrifices um, that she made, so basically she had me and then, you know, handed me over to my grandparents while she basically went back to school. She took three days off, right? She had me and took three days off. And, you know, here, you know, we, we, we have more time. We don't have as much time as, for instance, my Swedish husband's country has, but we do take more time. So that's one thing I I consciously did. I said, I'm going to take six months off from P&G. So when Mm -hmm. my first daughter was born, I took six months off. And actually then when I went back to work after the six months, my husband took six months off from his job. He was with Accenture at the time. And so he took six months off as well so that our daughter didn't go to daycare until she was about one year old. So I took six months off, but I came back as a brand manager to P&G. I was basically promoted uh, from ABM to brand manager at that time, right? So I came back as a brand manager. And then I had, when we moved to Florida and after I had my second daughter and I made the decision to separate from P&G, I started looking and thinking about full-time roles. And I was given two different job offers for full-time roles. And I realized, you know, I turned them both down and I realized to be true to myself, I just wasn't ready. I was not ready to go back to work full-time. I wasn't ready for that right away. So what I did do was I did some consulting and some freelancing until I did feel ready because I just gone through a lot of changes, moved here, had a baby, now had basically two babies, left a company that I'd been with for almost six years and really loved. So I I really wasn't ready to jump into anything right away. So I did that for a couple of years, actually. And then I had my third daughter. After having her and, again, doing the consulting and realizing that three girls no joke, or very expensive. I, I, you know, I said, you know what, now I'm ready. Now I'm actually ready to go. And when it came to that realization and that positive attitude towards going back to work full time, that's when I started pursuing roles that I was interested in. And, and I felt that I could do a great job in, even though it was different. There were not beauty companies in this area that would make sense. So um, that's when I pivoted to hospitality as, as something that I thought I could do a great job at and that I was actually very interested in because it's not just a product, it's an experience. So it's the product and the service mm-hmm. coming together, which I thought was really, really interesting to me. And Anna, I wonder, you know, because we we talked about your daughters, right? A huge part of your life and influential in your career paths and some of those forks in the road. What do you think your kids would say they've learned from you? Well, 
they would probably say, you know, they've, they've watched me. They've watched me all these years. And I think they can count on maybe one hand, fewer than one hand, the times that I was not at something for them. Hmm. Again, going back to the sacrifices my mother made, I learned from them, but I also was very clear with myself that I was not willing to make as many. I didn't have to fight as hard as my mother in, you know, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So what they've seen is that I've had to, I've had to create that balance, right? You, you can't do it all. You can't have it all. You know, it's it's that, that cliche that you talk about in terms of women, you know, trying to do it all, but, but there's a way to get most of it done. And so, yes, my, middle daughter will say, oh, remember when Papa had to come to the Mother's Day tea <laughs> when, I, when I was three? And I was like, yeah, you are three and you are 17 now. So that's that's not terrible. That's a pretty good track record, right? <laughs> she remembers that though. Huh? Oh, vividly, vividly. <laughs> but but I think at the, at the same time, she thought it was a little cool that that, that happened. But you know, what, what are they going to think? What, what I tell them all the time is never settle for anything, right? Don't settle mm-hmm. until you reach an outcome that you're satisfied with. So until you've reached that endpoint and you're like, okay, that's what I wanted or that works for me, you are not done, right? So just follow everything through mm-hmm. until that point, um, right? And that's something I also learned at PNG. like take the initiative, that's that initiative and follow through. Make sure you follow through until you've exhausted it to the point that you are satisfied with that outcome. And I think the other thing I always tell them is, you know, you are not a victim. You are absolutely not a victim of anything, right? So you have to mm-hmm. take control and own it and change it if you if you see that it's going in a, in a way that you don't want it to go. But you are never, ever a victim. So, you know, just own it and, and make it happen for yourself. Absolutely. I think that's great advice for for your kids and for anybody, right? We have to be able to own things and not see ourselves in a victim role. Be part of the solution is always what I say. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about the past and how you got to where you are today. What are you working on that has you the most excited these days? So, like I said, you know, I'm in the restaurant industry and I think that industry in particular, going through COVID, and as we always saw in the news, that industry was hit very, very hard um, with the pandemic in terms of shutting down. And, you know, it's recovered for for the most part. It still has some challenges. But I think, you know, coming out of that, what came to light for me is that people still crave that human connection, right? So coming out of COVID, one of the what we saw in 2021 and 2022 was just huge pent up demand for restaurants. And why is that? Well, because people wanted to connect. They wanted the experience. They wanted to gather. They wanted to create memories, especially in restaurants like Melting Pot, which really, really dominates in terms of celebrations, right? Birthdays and anniversaries and people were really craving to have that connection. So some of the things that I'm working on now is just truly now being able to better understand that guest and that consumer doing kind of some fundamental work for for this brand, but that's what really gets me excited. And I see it in my team too. My team has been at, at Melting Pot or Front Burner longer than I have, but they've never, ever done this kind of work. And so I feel that from my team that they are very energized by really listening to the consumer and actually making 
um, some decisions and, and, and pulling together some ideas that are really with them first and foremost. So I think that part is, is super exciting and things that we're working on right now. And what about mentorship? I wanted to circle back to that because you had mentioned, you know, the woman that you saw that was at the same level and had three kids. Have you had mentors along the way? And if so, what has been the most important aspect to you of that mentorship? Yeah. So one of my mentors at Procter & Gamble was the brand manager that I worked with when I was um, when I was an ABM on, on Max Factor. So that was my, I guess, my second assignment as an ABM. And she was the brand manager. And what I love, and her name is Lisa Reynolds. I know Lisa. You do? She's great. <laughs> yeah, we're still in touch. And, and I, I, I truly, truly adore her. And uh, what I loved about her was that she kind of guided me into my future as a as a brand manager and as a mom. So when I first started working with her, she had just had her first son. So I did not know her or I had not worked with her before she had kids. But I realized how she made it all work and how she made it all seem maybe not as daunting as it otherwise would have been. Uh, she was incredibly even keeled. She looked very balanced and she looked very happy and kind of at peace, right? And so that's the person I saw myself wanting to be. And I've always been known and and people throughout my career have always said, you know, you're very even keeled. Like they actually use the same words. You know, <laughs> you're so even keeled. And like when when things go down bad, that's when I get the most calm, right? So, you know, when people get stressed out, that's when I kind of just, you know, maybe we haven't talked about this either, but I'm I'm actually an introvert. And so I fall back into that zone and I'd like have to like just think and figure it out and assess quietly in my own head before, you know, coming out with it. And so, so yeah, so that part of, of Lisa, she was super, she is super smart, always prepared, always a step ahead because you know what, as a mom and as a working mother and as a leader, you kind of, I, I, I have no time to waste. Mm-hmm. And so every minute of my day has to be productive, you know, in, in so many different ways, right? Be it, be it work related, be it family related. And so she taught me how to really see that, but in a way that I could be calm versus you know, freaking out about things at all time or hyperventilating through everything. And so what people see on that surface, it's like that duck analogy, right? You just see the duck floating along and under the water, it's like paddling like crazy. You know, that's me and that's that's the reality. Right. But that's something that I that I learned from her. And I think the other thing is, you know, you you've got different mentors and different, you know, people that you look up to for different different parts of your of your life altogether. But she's probably the one that that I think I consistently think back on that really taught me how to do that well. And I think it's amazing that you guys are still in touch. I think that really speaks to the quality of the relationship and the mentorship that, right, decades later, you guys are still connected. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love her. Well, and related to that, Anna, do you have anybody that you're mentoring currently? And if so, what are some of the foundational ways that you approach mentoring? Yes, I do mentor and it's it's typically women that I that I mentor not because you know I only mentor women it's just that those are the ones that that have reached out to me and they 
and that that's from a few different places. So one is actually another former PNG colleague, uh, Sue Conway. She she retired from PNG and she's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and a marketing she's a marketing professor there. And sometimes people approach her because they are interested in hospitality or restaurant marketing. And so she says, oh, well, I, I know I know somebody that that can maybe help you. And so she's reached out asking if I'd be willing to, to mentor or talk to some of her students and I'm, and I'm happy to. And that's interesting to me because it's so specific to restaurants. And this is somebody, you know, like you asked me earlier on, I never saw myself as working in hospitality uh, or restaurants and so the fact that they, at such a young age, already know that that's something that they want to do, I think is interesting to me. So I try to help them. I try to mentor them. I try to, you know, give them some advice. The other people that I that I speak to are, of course, women, but can also be minorities. So, for example, one of my mentors is actually, you know, a direct report of mine, and she is a Hispanic woman. And so I... I try to instill in them confidence. I, again, you know, what I tell my daughters about not being a victim, I tell her too, right? You're not a victim because when you work multifunctionally, sometimes, you know, you work with very strong multifunctional counterparts that are just maybe slightly more difficult to work with. And so really making, ensuring the, that she has the confidence, instilling that confidence. And sometimes maybe I'm a little harder on her versus other employees or other, you know, direct reports because I do want her to to push yourself and to succeed and and to have that confidence needed because I do want her to get to that next level. And then I guess the last one was a a direct report of mine from Procter & Gamble. She was African-American from Alaska, (laughs) which is, you know, a very interesting combination. And, you know, very similar in that wanting to make sure that they had the confidence and they had the tools and they, you know, basically what Lisa gave me, Lisa Reynolds gave me, I always tried to pass on to them because you, maybe you're today you're, you're single and unmarried and no kids, but you will, you know, at one point, depending on, you know, how you live your life, you may get married, you may have kids, you might have one or two or three and things get complicated. So, mm-hmm. Some of these people are like, how do you do this, Anna? Because, you know, you've got this job, you've, it's very demanding. You've got, you know, three kids and they demand your attention. And then, you know, now I've got aging parents. And so you just try to, you know, keep it real and keep it light and just say, look, there's no formula. There is no direct path. I have not followed a direct or clear path. And frankly, nobody that I really know has, everybody has to pivot at times in their life. But what I do know is that you will be or you will be doing exactly what you were meant to be doing at that point in time when you do it. Mm -hmm. So just kind of like breathe it in and and don't always be like looking for the next and looking for the next thing because you're you're not going to be satisfied. You're not going to be happy at that very moment. Yep. Right. So you have to balance it all. Yeah. I love that about not having a clear path and just enjoying where you're at and you'll be you will be exactly where you're meant to be in that moment. I think that's great advice. Well, Anna, it's hard to believe we're almost out of time here. So I want to make sure to end with a few quick questions for things people might not know about you. What do you think's a fact about you that might surprise others? So I would say that, you know, I, I started off saying, you know, I'm 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 the product of Cuban immigrants. My family's from Cuba but I've actually never been to Cuba and I actually have not been to Latin America. 
at all. South America. Oh, wow. Okay. I, you know, I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to certain places and I've certainly been to Spain, which is Spanish speaking, but I've never been to Cuba. I would love to go. Uh, it's a little, I don't know, bittersweet for me to think about it, um, given, you know, my family. Mm-hmm. So that'll hopefully someday come, but I've never been, but I've also never been to South America, which, which is strange. And I need to do something about that. <laughs> Christmas is coming up, right? <laughs> Vacation time is coming up. Um, what is your go-to vice? My go-to vice? Like a guilty pleasure? Yes. Okay. I, I'm i a big Duran Duran fan. <laughs> okay. I know. It's embarrassing, but it's awesome. <laughs> and I we re- recently, I dragged my husband to a Duran Duran concert in June. It's just fun. And the nostalgia, you know, just kind of hits me hard when I go to things like that because it's, um, you know, it just brings me back to a, a simpler time, a fun time, uh, you know, certainly not the fragmented times that we're in today um, where, you know, we can be home and everybody's off doing something different. Like nobody's watching the same thing, you know, a movie, you know, I've got one daughter watch, you know, watching something on her computer in one room, the other one watching something else. So it's, it was just a simpler time when everybody did things together and everybody was kind of into the same thing. So yeah, I think that's my guilty pleasure just because it just brings out this like warm, fuzzy nostalgia in me. (laughs) I love that. Okay. And if you had infinite resources and could go do or learn any one thing, what would it be? Go do or learn any one thing. Um, I would love to dance. I have, um, my mother grew up um, dancing ballet and interestingly, she never made me do any of that. And so if I could go and learn and do to be a dancer, maybe not, you know, obviously not classically trained, but go and do dance, I think that would be, that would be something really fun for me to do. Um, Either that or pick up another language, which would be fun. And then actually, but because I'm actually going and living in that culture. Now, so I have to ask though, if you wanted to learn to dance, would it be any certain genre? I don't know. Maybe ballroom would be fun. Some kind of ballroom dancing. Okay. So not moves for Duran Duran. <laughs> no, I got those already. <laughs> like, those are very, very different. But ballroom dancing is very different than that. Yeah. Okay. One last question. What is a final piece of advice or challenge you'd give to the next generation? I would tell them to just stay curious, be curious. I feel that that might be a little bit lost on this generation. You know, you see people are a little bit more inwardly focused. I mean, nothing's more obvious than when, you know, you see people walking down the street and they're all just on their phones looking down and not looking up and out. I fear that that is, you know, a manifestation of, you know, just just not necessarily being curious about the world around you. So it's stay curious, be open to things, open yourself up to things, talk to people, maybe turn the phone off for a minute and engage with things around you, travel, push yourself, be open to potentially pivoting and adapting to certain circumstances and just learn from the experience. You know, my kids, again, they think it's hilarious when my husband and I Google things and it's like, well, you know what? I'm curious about something and <laughs> Google might answer those questions for me, you know, faster, you know, instead of just shrugging my shoulders and not caring about it. So right. again, it's just being curious to things and opening yourself up because I think you find that those things connect to each other more than you would ever expect it to. 
Absolutely. Well, Anna, thank you so much for being with us today on the PNG Alumni Podcast Learnings from Leaders. It's been a pleasure to be able to chat with you today. And I look forward to our audience being able to learn from you as well. Thank you again for being on our show. Thanks, Ida. Pleasure to be here. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Ida Abdelkani. And I'm still Raman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.